Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, January 23, 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. Cedar Rapids murder trial ends with plea deal. Cassius Childress pleads to second-degree murder in 2022 slaying by Trish McAfee, the Gazette. As the prosecution was set to wrap up its case against Cassius Childress for the first-degree murder Monday, Childress decided over the weekend to accept a plea in the 2022 fatal shooting of Cordell Lewis. Childress, 22, pleaded to second-degree murder and faces up to 50 years in prison instead of the possible life sentence he faced if convicted at trial. He must serve a mandatory 35 years for being eligible, before being eligible for parole. During the plea, Childress admitted to firing multiple times at Lewis and that he acted with malice and intended to kill him. He also admitted that Lewis didn't have a gun and he fired at Lewis as Lewis was running away from him. According to trial testimony last week, Lewis was running away from Childress, who fired 11 times, striking Lewis multiple times in the back. Bullets hit Lewis's sternum and went through his heart. Police found nine shell casings at the scene. Lewis was found dead January 27, 2022, in the 300 block of 31st Street Drive Southeast. Childress and others first robbed Lewis of money and some jewelry, jewelry he was wearing. Cedar Rapids Police Investigator Sarah Lacina testified Friday that Childress told them how Lewis was killed and who robbed him, but identified the shooter as Kayvon Johnson, 22. The other man, Childress, is accused of fatally shooting the next day, January 28, 2022. During the plea, Childress made an insulting hand gesture to the Lewis family, who were in the courtroom, and they say he also winked at them. The family was upset and reported the incident to the Lynn County Attorney's Office following the hearing. Sixth Judicial District Judge Christopher Bruns, during the plea, said there was no basis to support a defense of justification, which Childress planned to use, claiming the shooting was in self-defense or in defense of others. We are confident that Mr. Childress entered a plea guilty to murder in the second degree was the most optimal outcome in this case, Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybank said after the plea. Our thoughts and our hearts are with the family of Cordell Lewis today who have waited for this closure for nearly two years. During the trial, a video showed Childress shooting multiple times at Lewis as he ran away from him. Childress and others had planned to rob Lewis, who they believed would have had money on him that day. Johnson and two women, not identified or charged in the case, picked up Lewis that day and brought him over to the house at 309 31st Street Drive Southeast, according to testimony. Two guns were found at the 309 address, one belonging to Pierre Bow, 34, who also is charged in Lewis's robbery and shooting, and the other identified as the murder weapon was found in a box in the basement. Johnson was found dead at 7.25 a.m. January 28, 2022, in the parking lot of Cedar Valley Park, 2250 Blakely Boulevard Southeast, according to a criminal complaint. During the investigation, police found surveillance video that showed Johnson had been at the come-and-go at 1420 Mount Vernon Road Southeast in a vehicle with Childress, while minutes of another video an audio clip that showed a vehicle matching the same description entering Cedar Valley Park and captured multiple gunshots being fired. 
Childress admitted being at the scene when Johnson was shot, according to the complaint. He was also identified by a witness as the person who fatally shot Johnson. Childress is charged with first-degree murder and going armed with intent in Johnson's death. His trial is set for February 20th, but it may be reset in light of Monday's plea. Linmar <clears throat> Marion seek to extend fund for projects. Districts voters to decide future of levies in March by Grace King. When the roof of Francis Marion Intermediate School in Marion partially collapsed in October during a storm, repairs were covered by a voter-approved capital projects fund. Without the fund called the Physical Plant and Equipment Levy, said Director of Operations and Transportation Bob Scott, I can't fathom how we would do the repairs without it. Without Pepple, there would be a lot of major budget cuts to pay for emergencies and projects. Since October, when damage was identified at Francis Marion Intermediate by an evening custodian, the roof and some fire safety equipment has been repaired. The school still is waiting on new carpeting and new ceiling tiles and some technology that was damaged by the storm. Voters in the Marion Independent and Linmar School Districts will be asked March 5th to consider extending the PEPL Fund, which school leaders say is integral to maintaining facilities and purchasing vehicles and technology. The fund must be renewed by voters every 10 years. If renewals are approved, the extension would not raise the existing school tax rate for residents of either district. Our voted PEPL generates financing that is a crucial part of our budget and affords us the opportunity to provide our students with an exceptional learning environment where they can thrive, Linmar Superintendent Amy Kortmeyer said. Our community has made significant investments in our facilities, and a PEPL is a cost-effective way to maintain and protect the district's assets for future generations. Linmar and Marion School Districts each have had voter-approved PEPL in place for more than a decade. If the measures are approved in March, PEPL would be extended through 2035 at the existing rate of $1.34 per $1,000 of taxable property value. PEPL generates $3.5 million to $4.7 million annually in the Linmar School District. About $1 million of it each year is spent on technology, another 600000 on roof repairs, and up to 600000 on purchasing school buses. This fund cannot be used to pay salaries. The fund helps the district maintain its facilities to continue to be a designate, designation, destination district where kids can come into the warm, inviting, safe, and secure buildings, Courtmeyer said. If PEPL is renewed, Linmar would use the funds for school security upgrades, including doors and locking systems, technology infrastructure improvements, roof repairs and replacements, school restroom updates, parking lot improvements, heating and cooling system maintenance, and the annual replacement of three to four buses. Revenue from PEPL also is funding aspects of Linmar's five-year facility master plan projects are a new administration building that will create extra space for the high school when the administration vacates its current location, new tennis courts, a larger performance venue, and an indoor athletic center leaders at Marion Independent Schools are working toward the longer the long the district doing all its snow removal in-house. 
a large task some years. This January alone, the eastern Iowa area received about two feet of snow. That's going to take some substantial purchases, such as two more snow plows and more efficient equipment to clean off the sidewalks, Scott said. Those purchases could be made with PEPL funds. Marion Independent also purchases new school bus every year with PEPL funds. The high school is undergoing some projects funded by PEPL, including updating the heating and cooling system and upgrading to more energy-efficient lights. Cedar Rapids District Schools Voters in the Cedar Rapids Community School District also will be asked to consider extending the physical plant and equipment levy for an additional 10 years. This vote will go to voters in September. These funds support the maintenance and upkeep of the Cedar Rapids Schools, 425 acres and 2.7 million square feet of building space. Sledding crash turns fatal for Anamosa Teen. Boy was hit by vehicle by Emily Anderson. The Gazette. An Anamosa teen who was struck by a vehicle after the sled he was riding shot into the street outside his home died last weekend, 10 days after the crash. Adam McWhorter, 13, was sledding with a friend January 10th in his driveway in the 13,13,000 block of Buffalo Road near Anamosa when he picked up speed and slid into the road where he was hit by a northbound 2008 GMC Envoy. He died Saturday from his injuries at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital, according to an obituary. A celebration of his life is scheduled Thursday at Antioch Christian Church in Marion. No one has been charged in the crash, which remains under investigation by the Iowa State Patrol. As part of the investigation, troopers searched the sport utility vehicle involved in the crash, reenacted the scene, and interviewed an 11-year-old boy who was sledding with Adam at the time, according to the search warrant affidavit. The driver of the car, 49-year-old Anamosa resident, told law enforcement the boy wasn't visible until just before he entered the road. The driver hit the brakes as soon as Adam came into view, but was not able to stop in time, the driver told investigators. As part of mapping the scene, and in order to verify what the driver said about visibility, a Jones County Sheriff's deputy got on a sled and slid down the driveway while a state trooper took a video from the road sitting in a pickup patrol vehicle. The top of the deputy's shoulders and head are the only things visible until he reached almost the end of the driveway. My point of view, 5.2 feet off the ground, was approximately 6 inches higher than the view of the driver, 4.7 feet off the ground, likely would have been, as the pickup sat higher off the ground than the envoy, the search warrant affidavit reads. The street where the crash happened was completely covered in snow and ice after that week's heavy winter storm, the affidavit notes. The 11-year-old told investigators that the pair had been sledding all day January 9th and woke up early January 10th to continue sledding. They had been sledding down the long driveway at Adams' house, racing to a bump in the snow toward the bottom of the hill. They had decided not to go all the way to the road because they decided it was too dangerous, the boy said. They were kneeling on the sleds, leaning forward, and using their hands to steer and brake. The last time they went down the driveway, the 11-year-old got a head start with McWhorter following close behind him. The 11-year-old reached the bump first and saw a car approaching the search warrant request states. 
He jumped off his sled and tried to get McWhorter's attention, the 11-year-old. Did not think McWhorter saw the car until McWhorter made it to about 10 to 15 feet away from the driveway and put his hands out to stop. A GoFundMe page started on behalf of the family after the crash has raised $37,532 by Monday afternoon, exceeding its $30,000 goal. Adam's mother, Amanda, wrote in an update shortly after the crash that he was placed on a ventilator at the hospital and was suffering from several broken bones as well as bleeding in his skull and lungs. The Animosa Wrestling Club also is hosting a fundraiser to raffle off two half-hogs donated by Lindley Locker, a meat shop in Center Junction. The raffle goes through January 30th and also will benefit Lucas Siglin another Anamosa boy who was injured in a snowboarding mishap January 9th. According to a GoFundMe page started on behalf of Lucas, the 15-year-old broke his neck during the incident and may not regain the ability to walk. The GoFundMe page has raised $12,970 as of Monday afternoon. Sledding-related accidents are fairly common in the United States, although they usually don't result in death. A 2020 study conducted by researchers at the Center for Injury Research and Policy at North Nationwide Children's Hospital found that 220,488 patients were treated in U.S. emergency departments for injuries related to sledding in 2008 through 2017. Nearly 70% of them were children 19 years and younger. Last winter in Iowa, Millie Rose Zemmler, age 5, was killed in Pella when she was hit by a truck after sledding into the roadway. Longest-serving ISU provost steps down. Successor search is starting immediately by Vanessa Miller, the Gazette. Iowa State University is immediately launching a search for a new provost after its record-setting senior vice president, Jonathan Wickert, announced plans to step down this summer following a dozen years in the role. Wickert, among the longest-serving provosts in the nation, setting records for longest-serving provost at Iowa State, among Iowa's public universities and in the Big 12 Conference, will join the ISU faculty as a mechanical engineering professor on June 30th. ISU President Wendy Winterstein, two years ago, reappointed Wickert to a third five-year term as provost following a favorable 2019 Faculty Senate comprehensive review of his office that included a survey completed by more than 1,000 faculty and staff. That survey, along with feedback from his direct reports and senior administrators, found Successes in promoting all areas of Iowa State's mission, including diversity across the university, transparent communication, and new initiatives. Still, Wickert said in a statement on his resignation, 12 years in this role is a long time. The next provost will bring other ideas and perspectives to continue moving the university forward, he said. Wickert, who earned bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of California, Berkeley, in the 1980s, first joined the ISU faculty in 2007 as chair of the mechanical engineering department. He served as Iowa State's College of Engineering dean from 2009 to 2012 before beginning as provost in July 2012 following a national search. Being provost is a profound responsibility and an amazing experience, and I've enjoyed working day-to-day with President Winterstein and other members of her senior leadership team, Wickert said in a statement. 
It's a privilege to see the entire landscape of Iowa State's teaching, research, and extension missions, and to collaborate with a community of scholars and stakeholders who care deeply about our traditions and future. In announcing Wickert's resignation, ISU administrators said a search for his successor will follow a timeline and process similar to the university's provost search in 2012, when Wickert replaced former ISU provost Elizabeth Hoffman. Hoffman came to Iowa State in 2006 from her presidency with the University of Colorado system, and she asked former ISU president Stephen Leith in February 2012 to begin a search to replace her. Winterstein, who at that time was Dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, chaired a 17-member search committee that Leith promptly compiled. By April, the university had announced three finalists, including Wickert and candidates from the universities of Nebraska and Cincinnati. The university announced Wickert as its selection in May, with a start date of July 30, 2012. Provost Wickert has served Iowa State University with skill, intelligence, and dedication, Winterstein said in a statement. Around the region and nationality, he is a recognized leader for his insights and ability. I sincerely appreciate all Provost Wickert has done to support this great university. Time as Provost As Provost, Wickert oversaw a broad array of academic and administrative functions helping to implement key initiatives and achieve marked success over the years, including creating a winter session, Iowa State Online, and multiple new degrees, increasing graduation rates and time to degree for undergraduates, launching success policies for faculty like structured term faculty ranks, modified duty assignments, and an exceptional performance pay program, expanding recruitment of domestic and international students, and developing through fundraising, visioning, and oversight the Student Innovation Center, which debuted in 2021. As Chief Academic Officer, Wickert also has collaborated with faculty across Iowa State's departments and colleges. He's a goal-driven leader who clearly puts the academic mission of the university at the forefront of his actions, and I believe his commitment to shared governance and strong faculty leadership is proof of that. Sarah Bennett George, teaching professor and president of the Faculty Senate, said in a statement, This university is stronger because of his years of service as provost. Wicker, in the 2023 budget year, made an annual base salary of $466,559, according to State Database. His new salary as ISU professor hasn't been made public. In our Iowa Today section, burglaries under investigation at fire scene. Nine incidents reported to Cedar Rapids police since tenants briefly were allowed back Friday by Emily Anderson, the Gazette. Nine burglaries have been reported to police at a northeast Cedar Rapids apartment building that tenants say they were removed from after a fire killed one person and injured three others in December. The South Chalet apartment building 210 19th Street Northeast caught fire December 5th and killed Wasfia Elshinawe, 71. The cause of the fire was determined to be accidental, but more specifics about the circumstances have not been released. The fire investigation still is ongoing, according to the Cedar Rapids Fire Department.
Freedom, R-E-M-I, Remy, the real estate company that manages the apartment building, has not responded to several phone calls from the Gazette requesting comment about the fire or the thefts. Former occupants said all tenants were removed from the building after the fire and were allowed to either break or break their lease or move to other apartment buildings managed by Freedom, Remy. Friday, former tenants were able to go back into the building for the first time since the fire, and many discovered their possessions had been rooted through and things were stolen. According to the Cedar Rapids Police, as of Monday, nine third-degree burglaries have been reported at the property since Friday and are under investigation. Anna Peterson, a former tenant, was in her apartment at the time of the fire and was rescued by firefighters through a window. Her two cats were home with her and also got out alive. She and her husband moved with their cats to a different apartment owned by Freedom Remy because they liked the month-to-month leasing contract they had, but now they're considering if they want to stay, she said. It's just very frustrating because it feels like the landlord and the property owner are more concerned with maintaining their assets rather than any of the assets that that were still in the building, Peterson said. Peterson said she and her husband were told by the property manager they could get back into the building starting at 8.30 Monday, but they didn't find out until they got there that they would only have until noon before the building was closed again. Once they got inside and saw the apartment had been rummaged through, they focused on getting all of their valuable items out of the apartment. Luckily, not much had been damaged by the fire, except some was covered with soot. Peterson said she doesn't know what security protocols were put in place while the building was closed, and she does not know if her and her husband will be able to be compensated for any of their missing belongings. At the very least, the only good thing that can be said is that it seems like they were picky picky looters, Peterson said. It was very clear that they went through every single drawer. They opened up our document lockbox and dumped all the documents, but car titles were still in there, Peterson said. Things that were stolen from the apartment, from what they could determine Friday, included a gaming system, a kitchen knife, a bathroom scale, a box of cables, and some microphones. But other high-value items, like a computer tower and multiple monitors, were left behind and have now been moved to the couple's new apartment. Peterson said tenants were told by the property company they'll have full access this month to to remove everything from their apartments. It's just a lot more frustrating on top of everything, Peterson said. It's just hard to know when it happened. It's hard to know if we had been just been let in one week earlier, if this wouldn't have been the case, or if this happened the second week after the fire. Lynn County Assistant Prosecutor appointed 6th Judicial District Judge. Current boss says he possesses immense legal knowledge by Trish Mahaffey, the Gazette. Kim Reynolds last week appointed an Assistant Lynn County Prosecutor as the next District Judge of the 6th Judicial District Court. Assistant Lynn County Attorney Mike Harris of Iowa City will fill the vacancy created by Judge Faye Hoover, retired earlier this month after serving 20 years on the bench. Harris received his undergraduate from the University of Iowa and his law degree from the UI College of Law. Harris, 43, has been a nominee previously, which isn't unusual for those applying for open positions. Many applying more than once before being nominated by the commission. 
I'm honored that Governor Reynolds selected me, and I look forward to serving the citizens of the 6th Judicial District, he said. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks said all the prosecutors and staff in the office are thrilled for him and wish him the best in his future role on the bench. Mike is honest, intelligent, confident, and possesses immense legal knowledge, Maybanks noted. He will be an excellent judge. Maybanks said Harris climbed the ranks fairly quickly in the office, moving up from misdemeanor prosecutors to felonies before turning 40 and racking up some impressive trial successes, including working alongside me in the prosecution of Jerry Burns in the 1979 cold case fatal stabbing of 18-year-old Michelle Martinko. Harris started as a Lynn County prosecutor in 2015. He previously had been a judicial law clerk and in private practice. The 6th Judicial District includes Benton, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, Lynn, and Tama counties. The position pays $158,056 per year. Nightmares haunt victims six years after sexual assault. Woman had to give up her softball dreams because of damage, trauma, coach caused by Trish Mahaffey, The Gazette. A woman this Monday said she has not been able to let go of the damage and trauma caused by her former softball coach who sexually assaulted her 16 years ago. I take medication every day just to get out of bed because of my depression and anxiety, the woman crying at times said Monday in her victim impact statement during the sentencing of James Anthony White, 60, of North Liberty. White, originally charged with two counts of third-degree sexual abuse and two counts of sexual exploitation by a school employee, pleaded guilty to one count of third-degree sexual abuse and enticing a minor away with intent to assault. During a plea hearing in November, White admitted to sexually assaulting the victim when she was 14 and 15 years old from January 2006 through December 2007. He also admitted to enticing away the victim with intent to commit assault. The woman who was a student at White's of White's during the 2016 school year and was coached by him on the Clear Creek Amana High School softball team told police in March 2022 about a sexual abuse incident, according to a criminal complaint. During her statement Monday, she said she still has nightmares of her hands on of his hands on her body and the things he would say to her as long as he was sexually abusing the 15-year-old girl who had dreams of playing Division I college softball and possibly playing professional ball someday. The resentment, shame, and anger she felt towards White made her leave her softball dreams behind, she said. I lost my very first love, the game of softball, because of what Jim White did to me. The woman said she earned a college scholarship and tried to bury her anger and resentment, but she couldn't do it. She had to give up her scholarship and took on heavy school debt to take back control of my life and work on her mental health. It also damaged her relationship with her parents when they incurred debt because they had to take out loans for her to go to college and play softball so she could pursue her dream. Instead of telling her parents, she pushed them away because she didn't have the courage to tell them what happened to her in high school. This led to further isolation and depression for the young woman. She was fearful and confused and pushed anyone away to hold on to the secret to protect white and successful softball program he had built at the Clear Creek Amana High School. I was failed by the adults around me to keep me safe, she said, after the original outcry was made to the school district in 
2006, students continued to tease me and the faculty just treated me like a problem and they wanted it to go away. No child should ever feel like that and I pray they never will have to again. The woman said she was re-victimized online in November by people who didn't want to accept what White had done and that's pleading guilty. That is why I'm here today to tell my truth, get one step closer to closure, and to heal out loud for my daughter and myself, the woman said. I feel that I can leave here confidently knowing I did not remain silent and I did the right thing. Thank you for everyone that has been there to help me all along the way and believed in me after all these years. White declined to make a statement after his sentencing. Sixth Judicial Court Judge David Cox followed the plea agreement and filed the plea agreement and sentenced White to a suspended sentence of the 10 and 5-year prison sentences and ordered him to serve three years of probation. White, as part of the sentence, also must comply with the requirements of a sex offender registry and be on special sentence of parole for life. A no-contact order to protect the victim also was extended for five years. Johnson County Attorney Rachel Zimmerman-Smith said she was grateful for the victim's incredible courage to come forward with her sexual assault. Because of her bravery and the dedication of Detective Sergeant Tyler Schneider and the Johnson County Sheriff's Office and Assistant County Attorneys Michael Lang and Haley Huddleston, the defendant is being held accountable. White was a teacher and softball coach at Clear Creek Amana for several years before leaving in 2012 to coach at Solon High School. He coached softball at Solon until 2017, then returned as an assistant softball coach for the 2021 and 22 seasons. His contract at Solon ended the summer of 2022, according to Solon School District Superintendent Davis Idol. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, January 23, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. William Bill Edward Cummings of Cedar Rapids. William Bill Edward Cummings, 74, of Cedar Rapids, died Tuesday, January 16, 2024. Funeral Mass, 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 25, 2024, at St. Patrick Catholic Church by Rev. Dennis Miller. Burial, Mount Calvary Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family on Thursday from 9.30 a.m. to 10.15 a.m. at the church. Tehan Funeral Home and Cremation is caring for Bill and his family. Bill's full obituary can be viewed at www.tehanfuneralhome.com. Regina Gertrude Katowski. Regina Gertrude Katowski, 103, of Cedar Rapids, died Sunday, January 21, 2024, at her residence. Funeral Mass, 10.30 a.m., Friday, January 26, 2024, at St. Pius X Catholic Church by Rev. John Sita. Burial, St. Joseph Cemetery. A rosary will be recited with a vigil service to follow at 4 p.m. on Thursday at Tehan Funeral Home, 3100 F Avenue, Northwest, Cedar Rapids. Those not attending the vigil or rosary service may visit with the family from 4.45 p.m. until 7 p.m. or after 9.30 a.m. at the church on Friday. Memorials may be directed to Regina's favorite charities, Discovery Living, 
1015 Old Marion Road, Northeast Cedar Rapids, or the Cedar Valley Humane Society, 7411 Mount Vernon Road, Southeast Cedar Rapids. Online condolences can be left at www.tehanfuneralhome.com. Kelly Haig of Oxford, age 43, passed away Friday, January 19, 2024. Public visitation will be held from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, January 27, 2024, with a memorial service beginning at 4 p.m. at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service, 2720 Muscatine Avenue, Iowa City. For a complete obituary or to share a thought, memory, or condolence with her family, please visit the Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandchia.com. Regis Joseph Zweigert, 66, of Watkins, Iowa, passed away January 19, 2024, at Heritage Specialty Care, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, after a courageous 13-year battle with multiple sclerosis. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences can be sent to the family at www.newhousefuneralhomeservice.com. Broche Funeral Service of Norway is assisting the family. Celebration of Life is 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 25, 2024 at St. Michael's Parish Hall, Norway, Iowa. Private family burial will take place at St. Michael's Cemetery, Norway. Dorothy Louise Leakin was born April 3, 1936, on the family farm near North English, Iowa. She passed away on Sunday, January 21, 2024, at the English Valley Care Center in North English at the age of 87 years. Celebration of Life Service will be held 1 p.m. on Saturday, January 27, 2024, at the Powell Funeral Home in North English. Burial will be in the North English Cemetery. Visitation will be from 11 a.m. until service time on Saturday. Memorials may be given to the North English Christian Church, the North English First Responders, or the English Valley Care Center Activity Fund. Messages and tributes may be left at www.powellfuneralhomes.com. Jim Burns, 95, of Waukon, Iowa, died Saturday, January 20th, 2024, at Good Samaritan Center in Waukon. Funeral services will be held Wednesday, January 24th at 11 a.m. at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Waukon. Burial will be at Mount Olivet Cemetery, Waukon. Friends may greet the family from 10 a.m. until the time of service on Wednesday at the church. Martin Grau Funeral Home in Waukon is handling arrangements. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to a charity of choice. Online condolences may be left at www.martinfunerals.com. Robin Dale Reed, 63, of Center Point, Iowa, passed away peacefully surrounded by her family on Sunday, January 21, 2024, at her home. The family will host a celebration of life later in the spring of 2024. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Center Point assisted the family. Memorials may be directed to Hospice of Mercy. Please share a memory of Robin at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Adam McWhorter, 13, of Anamosa, died Saturday, January 20, 2024, at University of Iowa Children's Hospital, Iowa, following a sledding accident. 
A celebration of Adam's life will be held 11 o'clock Thursday morning at the Antioch Christian Church Marion, where friends may call after 9.30 that morning. Visitation will be held from 5 until 8 Wednesday evening at the Lawrence Community Center, Anamosa. Pastor Jason Ishmael will officiate at the services. Internment will be in the Riverside Cemetery, Anamosa. Thoughts, memories, and condolences may be left at www.geshonline.com. Allison O'Connell, 33, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Thursday, January 18, 2024, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics with her family by her side. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, January 25, 2024, at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 26, 2024 at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. In keeping with her spirit of giving, Allison will continue to live on through her gift of organ donation. Please share a memory of Allison at www.murdochfuneralhome under obituaries. Myrna Loy Steinke-Smith was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, August 18, 1950. Myrna lived life on her own terms, unapologetically. She faced death with bravery and grit and determination. On January 22, 2024, Myrna departed this life to return to God and to rest at last, her body made whole again. All activities will be held at Stuart Baxter Funeral Home Services, 1844 1st Avenue Northeast, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. A visitation will be held Friday, January 26, 2024, from 3 to 7 p.m. A celebration of life will be held Saturday, January 27, 2024, at 10 a.m. A reception will immediately follow the service. Attendees are encouraged to wear their favorite Hawkeye gear. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Myrna's tribute wall and share your support and memories with her family at www.stuartbaxter.com under obituaries. Memorials may be made to the family who will perform service projects once per month in Myrna's honor. Support will be provided to Tanager Place, Willis Dady Shelter, and Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House. Other organizations will be chosen based on Myrna's passions. Wayne Gerard, Wayne W. Gerard, 90 of Lone Tree, passed away on Friday, January 12, 2024, at his home in Lone Tree. Services will be held at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Lone Tree American Legion or the United Presbyterian Church of Lone Tree. Online condolences for the family may be sent to www.sandfuneralhomeservices. The Snyder and Hollenbaugh Funeral and Cremation Services of Lone Tree is caring for Wayne's family and arrangements. And now for the sports. Boys basketball. North Lynn, Bellevue Marquette switch top two spots in Class 1A. Trinity, Iowa City West are 1 and 2 in Class 4A poll by Jeff Johnson, The Gazette. Tri-Rivers Conference mates Bellevue Marquette and North Lynn switch positions in this week's Iowa High School Athletic Association Boys Basketball Rankings. Marquette is 1A's new number one 
with North Lynn falling from first to second. The teams play February 2nd. Marquette improved to 14-0 with three wins last week. North Lynn, 13-1, lost for the first time last week, 52-45 at Albernat, a good Class 2A team. It was only the Lynx's second regular season loss since the start of the 2016-17 season. The other came to Edco. North Lynn was a 2007 record in its last 207 games, with four of those losses coming to state championship games. Kyoto, 12-0, had both of its scheduled games postponed by weather last week, but moved up from 7th to 5th. Lansing Key, 141, slipped from number 8 to number 10 with its first loss, 57-54, at home to MFL Marmac, another good 2A team. The other number ones remain the same in Cedar Rapids Kennedy, 4A, Clear Lake, 3A, and West Lyon, 2A. There was no poll last week due to the few numbers of games played the previous week because of two large snowstorms that postponed most of the action. Kennedy, 11-0, solidified its top ranking in 4A, blowing out Cedar Rapids Prairie and Dubuque Senior last week. Senior 11 and 1 dropped from 3rd to 6th after that aforementioned 57 to 34 Kennedy victory. Iowa City West 9 and 1 made a significant jump from 8th to 2nd as most of the ranked 4A teams lost last week or the week before. The Trojans host number 8 Cedar Falls 9 and 2 in a big game Saturday afternoon. The remainder of the top 5 in 4A is Waukee 3rd, West Des Moines Valley 4th, in Ankeny Centennial 5th. Your top five in Class 3A remain the exact same as in the last poll. There'd be Clear Lake 110, followed by ADM 101, Waverly Shell Rock 11 and 2, Solon 12 and 0, and Decora 11 and 1. Marion 9 and 3 is back at 3A poll this week. Wolves have won six in a row and eight of nine, hosting Solon in a WAMAC conference game tonight. Monticello 11-1 fell from the top five this week after losing to Iowa City Regina 58-55 Saturday afternoon in the River Valley Conference shootout at Makokota. Regina moved to a 2A poll at 10th. Monticello is 7th. The 2A top five this week is West Lyon 13-0, West Christian 11-1, Hudson 12-1, Carol Kemper, 13-1, and, and Underwood, 13-0. Sports Day, events of area interest, girls basketball, City High at Linmar, 7.30 p.m., Solon at Marion, 6 p.m., Dubuque Wallert at Jefferson, 7.30 p.m., Regina at Tipton, 6.30 p.m., Washington at Dubuque Hempstead, 7.30 p.m., Prairie at Dubuque Senior, 7.30 p.m., Liberty at Cedar Falls, 7.30 p.m. Iowa City West at Waterloo West, 7.30 p.m. Boys Basketball, Linmar at City High, 7.30 p.m. Western Dubuque at Kennedy, 7.30 p.m. Solon at Marion, 7.15 p.m. Dubuque Hempstead at Washington, 7.30 p.m. Dubuque Senior at Prairie, 7.30 p.m. Cedar Falls at Liberty, 7.30 p.m. Waterloo West at Iowa City West, 7.30 p.m. Regina at Tipton, 8 p.m. Women's Basketball, Cornell at Illinois College, 7.30 p.m. Men's Basketball, Evansville at UNI, 7 p.m. 
Cornell at Illinois College, 5.30 p.m. On the radio, local talk shows, Todd Brommelkamp Show, 6.30 a.m., KGYM Gym Class, 3 p.m., KGYM Spencer on Sports, 4 p.m., KGYM. From Iowa Today, liberal website publisher sues house clerk. Also, a proposal to create teacher spending accounts within schools' current budget advanced in the Iowa legislature, but with some hesitation. The Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Des Moines, a progressive journalist, has sued the Iowa House clerk in federal court for denying her credentials to cover the chamber, claiming the denial violates her First Amendment rights. Laura Bellin, who publishes and reports for the liberal-leaning Iowa politics website Bleeding Heartland and also reports for KHOI-FM Radio and Ames, filed the lawsuit late last week in U.S. District Court's Southern District in Iowa. The lawsuit alleges that the House clerk cannot deny credentials based on political viewpoint or on the type of media for which the journalist reports. The defendant in the lawsuit is Iowa House Clerk Megan Nelson, whose office sets credentialing policy for reporters to work on press row on the House floor during each session of the Iowa legislature. The House Clerk is appointed by the Chamber's majority party, which in this case is Republican. The lawsuit asks the court to provide immediate relief in the form of a temporary restraining order and immediately credential Bellin to cover the Iowa House. Nelson did not respond to a request for comment. According to the lawsuit, Bellin applied for and was denied credentialing to cover the Iowa House from Press Row in 2019, 2020, 2022, 2023, and 2024. In 2023 and 2024, Nelson informed Bellin that her credential request was denied because she did not meet the requirements of the House's press workspace policy but did not specify why Bellin did not meet the requirements according to the lawsuit. In the Iowa Senate, reporters no longer have access to the press bench on that chamber's floor. In 2021, Secretary of the Senate Charles Smithson, who was appointed by the majority party Republicans, created a policy under which reporters' workspace was moved upstairs to the Senate galleries. That policy broke with more than a century of journalists working from press row on the Senate floor. Teacher spending accounts advance. Iowa lawmakers advanced with some caution a bill to provide teachers with state-funded accounts to purchase classroom supplies, noting it could see changes going forward. The bill, Senate filed 2009, would require schools to set aside a portion of their supplemental state aid for individual teacher spending accounts each year. Beginning teachers would receive $500, while other teachers would receive $200. Because the bill includes no new state spending, school districts would need to divert money from other expenses like teacher salary or professional development. Public education advocates told lawmakers the bill would create more budget headaches for school districts without a separate funding stream. The proposal would cost about $8 million out of the state's per-pupil school funding allotment, an Iowa Legislative Services Agency official said. The state spent about $3.7 billion on K-12 schools last year. We appreciate the idea, but like has been stated, there's no new appropriation, Iowa Association of School Board lobbyists Michelle Johnson said. So this would be taking out of the general fund budget for the school district, which in many cases is already kind of strapped. 
Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, Democrat Waukee, did not vote to advance the bill, saying lawmakers would, should spend new money to, to create the teacher spending accounts. Senator Lynn Evans, a Republican from Aurelia, said he was concerned that the bill would remove budget flexibility for school districts. He voted to advance the bill, but said he wanted to it to be amended. School Fire Alarm Response Plans Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill requiring school districts to include in their emergency response plans a policy that directs students and other school personnel how to respond to a fire alarm activated on school grounds. The bill, Senate File 2017, would allow schools to more easily address active shooter concerns when a fire alarm is triggered at a school, said the bill's sponsor, Senator Chris Cornoyer, Republican LeClaire. She said it was inspired by the North Scott School District, which has implemented a policy for years that directs students and staff to first identify if there is an immediate threat, like the smell of smoke or the sight of fire, if a fire alarm goes off unexpectedly at the school. If there is no immediate threat, staff and students will wait for a confirmation from safety officials before evacuating the building. The plan is in response to concerns that a shooter at a school could pull a fire alarm to draw students out of the classroom in order to more easily target students. North Scott High School Assistant Principal Aaron Schwartz said during a subcommittee meeting on Monday that the bill would make it easier for schools to implement this type of emergency response plan. When the school initially created the plan, Schwartz said it received pushback from local fire marshals and had to seek state approval. He said the change in law would make districts feel more comfortable making the change. We all grew up in a time, I grew up in a time, where when you heard a fire alarm, you're supposed to leave the building immediately, Schwartz said. And so they're looking for that assurance. They're looking for that green light that what you're doing now is different because it needs to be different. Reynolds, I will never back down on abortion issue. Iowa governor speaks on abortion rally on 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade by Tom Barton. Iowa Governor Tim Reynolds and Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd on Monday reaffirmed their commitment to defend Iowa's halted law that bans abortions early in pregnancy. The pair spoke during an anti-abortion rally at the Iowa State Capitol on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision overturned by the court in June 2022 that provided a federal protected right to abortion. Lawmakers last year passed the Reynolds signed bill into law House File 732, which remains tied up in court during a rare special session of the legislature. It would change the amount of time women have to seek an abortion from 20 weeks post-fertilization to as little as six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. The legislation prohibits abortions after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo. It includes exceptions for rape, incest, and medical emergencies. A Polk County District Court judge granted a request from Iowa abortion providers to halt enforcement of the new restrictions until its constitutionality can be considered by the courts. Reynolds and Byrd have asked the state Supreme Court to allow the new law to go into effect. It truly was an act of courage and conviction that will ultimately save precious lives, the governor said, of passing bills in 2018 and again last year that would ban nearly all abortions. As we continue to fight in the courts, I want to thank you for putting Iowa firmly on the side of life. 
Since both the U.S. and Iowa Supreme Courts overturned the right to an abortion, Reynolds said, the abortion industry and its allies have sunk to new lows in their attacks on the unborn. In this environment, there are those who say the pro-life movement should back down, the governor continued. They say that standing unapologetically for life is too risky or it costs too much. My response is simple. I will never back down from protecting the innocent and the unborn. Reynolds added, the work of building a robust culture of life that supports new and and expecting mothers continues this session. She mentioned her proposal to increase the coverage of postpartum care for new moms under Medicaid from two months to 12 months. Iowa is one of only a handful of states that has not implemented the extension and which made available to the states in the American Rescue Plan Act. To accomplish this, Reynolds' office said she would propose changing the eligibility for Medicaid coverage of birth and postpartum care to 215% of the federal poverty line from 375% under current law. While the benefits would be extended, fewer would qualify, keeping Medicaid costs for pregnancy and postpartum care neutral. Reynolds, in her condition of the state, address earlier this month also proposed a program to connect Iowans in need with faith-based organizations and the private sector and steer them away from government assistance. Bird said all life has value and must be protected and as a mom, as a pro-life woman, said she is thankful to get to defend our heartbeat law before the Iowa Supreme Court. We know that we are going to be successful, the Iowa Attorney General told the crowd gathered at the Capitol Rotunda for the annual Iowa Rally for Life. We just have to keep working and never give up. We're never going to give up when it comes to doing the right thing. Bird said all legal briefs from supporters and opponents of Iowa's abortion ban are due to be filed with the Iowa Supreme Court by the end of this month. She said she anticipates the court will hear oral arguments this spring and that a ruling is likely by the end of January. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. You can access a recording of today's reading on your website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.